Welcome to fundmonitors.com. Thank you for joining this webinar. My name is Chris Gosselin. Today we're focusing on small cap equity funds and obviously the sector in which they invest. Uh, this webinar should go for 30 to 45 minutes. There will be questions at the end, so there will be time for questions at the end, which will be moderated by my colleague Damon Purcell. Just as some background before I introduce our guest, let's look at small cap stocks, which have locally and globally underperformed large cap stocks over the past 12 months, as shown by their average performance. In Australia, small cap equity funds have fallen nearly 12% over the last 12 months. But if you look at their performance over the last three years, they're one of the best performing sectors. So it really indicates what a cyclical uh, sector this is and what cyclical sort of markets we've had over the last few years. Joining me today are three well-established managers in the small cap sector, Dean Fergie from Cyan Investment Management, Gary Rollo oh, from so. Montgomery, and Steve Johnson from Forager Funds Management. Welcome and good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if I could just start by asking each of you to give a, a, a brief outline of how you've handled this really difficult period. Uh, we've had COVID, we've had the invasion of Ukraine, um, the, uh, high inflation, interest rates. There's been just about everything but the kitchen sink thrown at you. Dean, perhaps you could start off. Yeah, look, I mean, it's no doubt it's been an incredibly difficult time. I think even going back to COVID where you had huge government incentives and businesses like the retailers, like just going bananas, it was a very, very difficult market to invest. You know, what we've always tried to do, we're, we're bottom-up fund managers and you try and focus on the underlying value. But even that hasn't really worked for us in the past sort of 18 months or so, we've seen a number of businesses that we own, you know, sometimes trading below cash backing, trading below their net tangible assets, which doesn't really make any fundamental sense. But, I mean, for us, we have an investment philosophy and framework and we want to stick with it. We know that not every kind of investment philosophy is going to work well in all markets. People invest because they believe in what you do. So it's about sticking with your knitting, not um, panicking out of stocks or, or you know, moving into spaces where you normally wouldn't invest because that's on trend, um, just sticking with what you do and riding out the volatility. So if you go back a little while, you were benefiting from IPOs, listings, uh, capital raisings. They've obviously pretty much disappeared or are they coming back into the, into the market now? On the IPO space, completely disappeared. I think there have been 10 new IPOs in the market this year. Uh, mainly they've all been resources, which is a space we don't play in. You know, if we'd gone back, you know, I mean, 2021, 20, 2022, even like 2019, there would have been, you know, five times as many. We are seeing quite a bit happening on the secondary market. So a number of companies have come to the market and raised in some cases, pretty significant leaks of capital in, in the small cap space. We've seen things like close the loop, raise uh, 40 mil, um, drone search, raise 50 mil, Weebit Nano, raise 45. So there's definitely 
activity in the market and there's a bit of money floating around. I think that is a bit of a silver lining on the cloud we've had in this marketplace. But at the moment, in the IPO space, nothing going on, although I expect that to certainly improve from very low levels we have now coming towards the second half of this calendar year. Thanks, Dean. Just, Gary, turning to you, um, have you found similar situations to Dean, particularly in the IPO sector, or is that not an area that you were focusing particularly on? Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks very much for hosting the webinar this evening. Yeah, coming to your question there, look, um, it's difficult, as, as Dean mentioned, to change your strategy, but you definitely have to adapt. Uh, you know, you've got to go where the money-making opportunities are. And if you don't, then you're missing out on that opportunity. And you mentioned IPOs uh, as, as one area where there was money to be made when those options were available. And for sure, we would participate in that as part of, I guess, being part of the small cap um, market opportunity is that you get to play in those things when they make sense. Um, one of the functions we perform for the market is companies need access to capital. And typically that's a big function for small caps because um, they, these businesses are typically in a growth stage of their cycle um, and therefore they need funding to deliver deliver on that. And, you know, most small cut managers will look at that as an opportunity and say, right, well, what do I get if I fund your growth? And so that's an area where we'll put money to work. You know, when, but just coming back to the original premise, markets have been tough. What do you do? Do you change what you do? Um, well, I suppose that the fundamental answer, like, like Dean's, is that you don't change, you just adapt. Um, you know, and if the macro and the economic assumptions that underpin markets change, well, you've got to too. Or you're missing out on an opportunity and possibly just having to take it on the chin for a while. So the best thing to do is to adapt. Um, in the markets, we you know we effectively are buying the future um, and we've still got that obligation to make money for our clients and protect their capital. That doesn't change. So you have to go where you think you can do that best. And pragmatism, if you don't adapt, you'll just um, you'll get rolled over by the market. So I think that's been the thing we've had to deal with in the last a little while, adapt to the upside when it comes and adapt to the downside when it comes. That's uh, that's part of the job. There can be a bit of a balance on that, though, surely, Gary, can't there? If you've got investors who have specifically invested in your fund for a certain style uh, or a certain sector of the market, uh, is it not risky to switch that or change that? Or are yeah. you not suggesting adapting to that extent? No, I mean, I think if, you, if you're binary and just saying, well, I only do this and therefore for two years out of seven, I'll be out of the market, then you've got to have the patience of your investors to sit there and take it on the chin. Um, whereas if you're more balanced and pragmatic and recognize that certain areas are just not going to deliver the types of returns and uh, for the risk profile that you're accepting, you can tilt your portfolio away from that. And the opportunity to invest everywhere across the cycle exists in small caps because you're all across the economy across the different styles of companies, whether they're value or growth, if you wanted to pick on that differential, you can play uh, in all of those opportunities and being able to be nimble enough to play in where the playing is, is going to pay off for you and not take on too much risk. That That's, um, that's important. Thanks, Gary. Steve, just turning to you, you're slightly different uh, as we understand it to both Dean and Gary in that you have Two funds, one 
Australian small caps and one international small caps. Um, has there been a big difference between the way the market's been operating locally in the Australian market versus the international small cap market? The trends have been very similar, Chris, that small caps around the world really have underperformed their their larger compatriots. And I had a quick look before I came in, the MISCI World Small Cap Index is some 18% under the large cap index over the past five years. The magnitude is actually bigger here in Australia. You're, you're almost flat if you're a small cap industrials in Australia, that index is flat over five years versus something like eight per annum out of the wider All Ordinaries Index. So the themes have been similar. The magnitude has probably been even more significant uh, here in Australia. And I think there's been more, I think more pockets and more opportunity to make money globally than there have been here in Australia. I think Dean touched on this, but outside of commodities, you probably count the number of stocks on one hand that have done well over the past three, four, five years. So I think it has been a particularly difficult time, and you know, I found in the US we've had we've had a bunch of sectors go through depression and recovery multiple times over that period, whereas there's been mostly depression across the board here in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting, Steve, because one of the opportunities in small caps, in fact, for all of you, is as Gary said. You've got an extraordinary range of companies, over 2,000 companies that are outside the the ASX 200. You've got every sector you could possibly want, um, even leaving aside the the mining and resources sector, which I understand why, why Dean avoids that. But you would think that there's still some opportunity there. But what I'm gathering from this is this is an across the board avoidance or sell down or just lack of liquidity in the in the smaller cap sector yeah i think i mean part of our process is to genuinely reflect on what's happened over the past five years and and question could we have done things differently and you know our mandate is not to exclusively invest in small cap stocks and and i think some more conservatism at the market peaks around holding more defensive larger businesses would have helped us a lot And I think in our Australian fund, we've made some money globally in commodities, but I do think in our Australian fund, there were some opportunities for the non-specialist there to, you know, buy coal stack stocks on 100% free cash flow yields. And they were some pretty straightforward opportunities that I don't think we, you know, we looked at and we undenied and we didn't pull the trigger and it would have been a really important ballast to us in a market that has been uh, very difficult. But you, you touched on liquidity and Yes, the number of stocks is extraordinarily wide, but liquidity has become an increasingly big problem in the small cap end of the market. I think as to why it's happening, you know, you've seen mandates pull, funds shutting down. There has been money coming out of the space, and there's plenty of opportunities to buy big lines of stocks. But once you're in, you can you can check out, but you can never leave. So uh, that liquidity at the small cap end of the market here in Australia, I think, has become a really uh, big issue and it it means for us that our holding period needs to be really long so okay we're going to invest in this business this is not a we buy it today and we can sell it in 12 months time it's we really need this investment to pay off for us over a five or a 10 year period that's always been our philosophy but i think we need to be extra careful about not getting that wrong when the liquidity is so bad that it's going to cost you a lot of money to exit an investment on the other side well dean mentioned that there were stocks that were trading at asset backing or even cash backing. 
So, Dean, if, if you look at some of those, is it not tempting to buy them just for the long term because you're not going to, theoretically, you're not going to lose money and yet the market can, uh, can turn against you? It's a real um, intellectual conundrum, I think. You, know, you probably see you know, a number of stocks and also the LICs that are trading well below their, their NOV, and it just seems like a, a, a no-brainer. But then, you know, why are they trading there in the first place? And I, I think it comes back to Steve's point is, is liquidity. Um, you know, it's just something, if something's trading at 20 or 25% below its NOV, should it go back to zero? Well, theoretically, it should go close back to close to zero, but, you know, why did it go from minus 15 to minus 25? Why can't it go to minus 40? I, I think you have, you know, you don't want to be smarter than the market. You don't want to sort of push against momentum of the market. So I think you want to be a little bit cautious. Um, the other thing I just add on liquidity, I, I think Sue's point's like completely right, that it's, it's really lacking in the market. And the other factor I think is that, you know, we saw – Particularly during COVID, that there are a lot of people at home, you know, not much to do, you know, Zoom calling and the like, and you know, they took to trading online and doing it profitably. We saw that in cryptocurrencies, and I think it flowed through to the ASX, and that was a real undercurrent of liquidity that the industries could take advantage of. That's all but disappeared. You know, everyone's lost money. Everyone's taking their losses. There's none of that there. The, the industries haven't been able to trade. So it's a, it's a, it's been a little a real issue, I think, for the past six to twelve months, certainly. And do you see that sort of lack of liquidity being in the individual investor, the private client investor, as well as on the institutional and the fund side? Do you think? I think so. You see it in sort of you know what Comsec report in terms of their volumes. They've they've fallen off a cliff. The other listed um, traders like Self Wealth uh, has also been under you know seen massive declines in its underlying revenue base. So yeah, it's definitely verifiable. Um, when will it come back? I, I think when you see a little bit of money being made in the market and maybe some of these value opportunities kind of basically kind of, you know, re releasing some of the value in the market and the share prices, you might see a little bit of investor interest returning. Um, so I'm certainly not nearly as pessimistic as I was a year ago, but I don't think it's started quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting. Gary, you mentioned that, you know, you're all investing for the future. You're buying for the future. You're not just buying, um, you know, for today or even tomorrow. And as Steve said, you've got to look well out beyond 12 months. So at what stage do you think the uh, either investor confidence or the economy may turn? You know, we've been beset by high interest rates. We've been as a result of high inflation. And that's obviously causing considerable concern amongst investors. And confidence, as we know, tends to ebb and flow on itself. So... Uh, Dean doesn't think it's quite ready yet. Gary, what's your views? Uh, there's still uh, some way to go, or is it is the opportunity, or are the opportunities starting to emerge? I think I'd bring a couple of observations to the table. I mean, first of all, uh, investors come to small caps for a number of reasons, um, but they usually include finding undiscovered value and looking for early stage growth companies that you can harvest the, 
the value creation event of them going from small to bigger to big, right? That's typically the classic way that you make money. You know, small caps, they just don't have the capacity to cost cut their way to glory. So you've got to find those early stage growers that are going to do the heavy lifting in your portfolio, provided you pick the right ones in that in your part in that part of your portfolio, fair enough. But that's the job of the of the of the of the fund manager, you know, to look for those idiosyncratic stock stories, get out there, visit the companies, understand where management are on taking that company based on its fundamentals from where it is to the objective they're looking for, and then stock pick away. Uh, that's the job. And even although the macro is against you or uncertainty is out there, you know, you keep going, you find these things. And I couldn't tell you whether it's going to be tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. But I do know that I want to know when I'm going to put my money and where it's going to be when that moment comes. And then, then the second point I probably put on the table is I, I do think when, and this is to reflect, I think what Dean mentioned earlier, I do think that short termism um, it, it doesn't say, you know, Montgomery share price yesterday management. It says Montgomery investment management above the door when I come in in the morning. And if you act like a day trader, you're going to get treated like one. So make some investments or find someone who can and put your money to work, because at some point the macro will go for you as much as it feels like it's going against you. So those are my those, that's my contribution to that side of the debate. Can I just change the shift a little bit? How are you finding your investors? You know, are they, you know, are they throwing their hands up? Um, you know, are they staying patient? Do they recognise that this is a tough time? And, and if you guys, the experts, are doing it or finding it tough, they've they've got Buckley's chance. Yeah, well, as you might imagine, we spend time talking directly to our investors. And we invest for uh, a range of investor types across the continuum, from the very high net worth individual to the more retail oriented mom and dad and, and some sort of family office type dynamic too. Uh, so the the engagement that we that we have tells us or educates us how they're feeling. And there's no doubt that um, when you go out and you talk to these financial advisors and financial planners, they are feeling like they've had it on the nose. And it's not just small caps, it's their bond portfolio. The bit that they were telling their <laughs> the bit that they were telling their clients, oh, that, that's your rock solid, don't you worry, and we'll go and you know have a crack with 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 parts of the rest of it. You know, bonds were down 20% last year, um, you know, give or take. Smalls underperformed, bigs by 20% last year. And as one of them said to me, like you're the you're you're doing what I'm expecting you to do, and that is you will be volatile, but I've got a chance of, you know having a few home runs in the small cap area, whereas that bond portfolio, I'm not sure what I'm going to tell my clients about that. So there's no doubt there's been big macro turmoil. There's been a reset of some of the key assumptions that we all use for evaluation frameworks. Um, that that's, that's definitely happened out there. On the other side, you know, as the conversation that we're having now, people are interested in making money. I don't think that's going away. And they recognize that Smalls is a place where that's happened before. And they're asking us if we think we can do it again. And we're looking around at the, you know, opportunity suite that we've got, looking at the valuation regimes that some of these stocks are sitting on. And we're saying to ourselves, you know, particularly in those less liquid areas, maybe some of those smaller names, we've seen valuation retreat. So there's there's an opportunity dynamic there. And, you know, as Stephen and Dean were, 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 were suggesting, 
Um, the liquidity's played a part there, but um, the valuation regime has been compressing. I don't know if it's going to keep compressing tomorrow, but I doubt it will stay like that forever. Um, so there's a there's a way up to be had. You need to keep yourself sufficiently liquid, but at the same time sufficiently engaged in opportunities so you can you know make the returns when that moment uh, when that moment comes. It is interesting, and we know the market's going to change. I mean, the market has has been. Uh, uh, through a series of ups and downs uh, ad infinitum or or uh, forever. Um, th- that will change. Um, question, of course, is is the timing and how much pain investors can accept along the way. And we've seen, Dean mentioned cryptocurrencies, you know, that, that there's still plenty of... of um, ambition or appetite for a significant outperformance. And it would appear from our anecdotal evidence and cryptocurrencies that because they're expecting a very volatile sort of run, they're, they're pretty much happy to, uh, to accept that and, and to take it on the chin. Um, so I think the same will occur now with small cap investors or investors in small cap funds, where they understand that this is uh, this is just how that market operates. So my clients have been, and I think most people are experiencing this. My clients have been really, really, really patient. You know, we're not getting people cashing out at the bottom. We're not getting a lot of panic. There's also a sense, though, that they've got a a free option here just to wait. You know, I recognise that things might be cheap. I recognise small caps have underperformed, but I feel like I can sit here for another six or 12 months and then make that decision later when the coast is a bit clearer for me. And I think that is a, a potential significant mistake. There's a, a fund manager out of the US called Global Alpha that had done some historical analysis around when small cap outperformance begins. And it was much, much earlier than even I had anticipated, i.e., in the first few months of a recession, you typically start getting small cap outperformance and it can last for quite a long time. And one of the main reasons is just that the starting valuations are typically so low that you go into the recession, you get the earnings downgrades, but everyone starts to go, well, okay, that's behind me now and I can see the other side. And by the time the investor sits there and goes, okay, this is all looking a lot better now, share prices are up 30 and 40%. And that is the easy, that's the gap here between where small caps are valued and large caps are valued. And then it becomes harder, right? It's not a, it's not an easy run from there. You're going to get long-term equity market returns. So I, I do think that, and it's really, really a widely held view that there is time here and that people can wait uh, for the coast to be clear. It's a really dangerous um, mentality to have in difficult markets. Well, simply because things will move very quickly when it does turn. And early. Things will move way, sure. way before the company reports the worst of its results. Sure. Investors will start looking to the other side of the bad results and say, well, okay, I can see that this is going to be behind it. And you know, what you're betting on is that you're going to be able to win that game. You're going to pick that point of maximum pessimism better than anyone else in the market. It's not about you don't get to sit here and wait for the coast to be clear. Jeremy Grantham said it back in the financial crisis best. He said the 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 tide he said the he said the, the market doesn't turn when there's light at the end of the tunnel. The market turns when it's just a shade less black than it was the day before. And that's what everyone needs to remember. 
Yeah, it's um, a really interesting concept. Dean? It's got to jump in, Chris. I, the, the stats, and I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's like if you miss the if – you, if you take out the, the five worst days in the market and the five best days – you know your, your returns. You know much worse than if you if you you leave your money in there all the time. The fact is, you know, you will have days when the market where it jumps three or four or five percent in a couple of days, and you know, in the small cap over a week, it can be up like ten or fifteen percent from the very bottom. If you miss that, it wipes out your sort of alpha for a long period of time. So this, like, I'll wait until there's a bit of a surgery when it's turned. If you wait everyone's run through that door and you're left, um, you know, with with substandard returns on your portfolio, certainly in that smaller cap space. So what I'm hearing from all of you on this is that, if anything, this is an opportunity. I mean, we saw an opportunity at the beginning of, uh, of the COVID outbreak where the market got absolutely smashed and oversold. And it does every time it falls rapidly, you know, it doesn't matter how far you go back. I'm sadly old and grey enough to remember 1987 and, and the opportunities. Um, you don't have to laugh that hard, Gary. That, that, that's a, um, but, Brian, you know, the opportunities in 1987 when the market was, you know, effectively fell 50% were extraordinary. And, and the wise heads, which I wasn't at the time, um, not sure if I am now, but the wise heads were picking up uh, stocks at, at literally at half price because people were, uh, in some cases, literally jumping out the windows. So there is the opportunity there. I don't think there we're at that sort of um, stage of of sharp falls at the moment. But um, maybe I'll ask you about that. You know, we've got um, inflation that I think is going to stay higher for longer than expectations. Uh, that indicates to me that interest rates will stay higher for longer. Um, but they're still historically not that high. So you would think that well-managed companies that are well capitalized should be able to should be able to do well in that environment, should they not? I think the difference to what you're talking about in terms of market routes, Chris, is I'd say the large end of the market is not particularly cheap at all. Yeah, you look at where interest rates are, long-term bond rates, you're looking at a, what, seven, eight sort of expected return from a lot of these large cap stocks. It's not horrible, but I don't look at that and say, this is the time to be backing up the truck to that part of the market. So it's something, I guess, of a relative value argument here in terms of how you allocate your portfolio rather than a 1987 COVID type market meltdown where I think you get the really quick recovery. I, I, I genuinely think this is you know, five or 10 years of, it may all come in a quick period at the start, but I think you'll get five or 10 years of, of outperformance here over time. And, uh, and I think that is what we probably need is the recession to actually hit and start and these businesses can get on with life and adjust whatever they need to adjust because it's the, the fear of it coming, I think, that's uh, the main impediment at the moment. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there and add a little bit of colour to that because I think one of the things we can do is is set the scene a little here. You know, just to put some broad numbers out there, smalls underperformed bigs by over 20% last year. Um, and if you sort of allow the quants to tell you why, they'll identify for you that a large part of the underperformance was driven just by size. So literally, just because we're small, we underperformed. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you can turn up, back up the truck, dump your dollars in the hands of a, of a, you know, a manager and say, right, off you go, make that money back. Because not all of the market is actually cheap. You know, defensives, as you might expect in an environment where we are today, those look expensive. And if you, if you own those, you might be locking yourself in a bit like Steve was mentioning to a period of, of low returns or worse, you might find there's a whole bunch of other people inside of those stocks that run for the exit just as you're thinking you want to park your money in there. So you got to look inside these um, small cap, cap market areas for the areas that, that are cheap, that don't look like they're trading at the right valuations for a normalization event in the economy. Now, you might not get the same kind of economy that you want, but um, as, as investors, we're all sitting here expecting some form of recessionary news, some recessionary outcomes. I can tell you 100% that's not normal. And a journey back to something that looks a lot more normal is going to get you um, is going to get you paid. And you've got to work out where you want to put your dollars in that scenario. And maybe maybe it's not those expensive defenses. Maybe it's in sectors and areas where they've had their valuation regimes punished and their expectations crimped. And management teams need to sit back, drink the Kool Aid, and you know do what they can to preserve whatever they're in business for because they're not being paid to do it today. And that's really, uh, I think, um, where some of the best opportunities is, is, are, are going to be. Um, if we look, if we all get in our time machine, go forward three or four years, we might see that. But you know, none of us have got. We've all lost the keys for that, so we'll have to. Um, we'll have to wait. Can I just ask a slightly different question um, on, on another tack? The sector has always been uh, criticised, or maybe the opportunity is there because it's been under researched. So brokers have either not been able to cover or not been prepared to cover the small cap sector because there just isn't there isn't uh, there isn't a reward in it for them. Um, is that still the case, or is that more so the case in the current environment? I, I would say that's still the case. I mean, you look at the top end of town, you know, those big caps, there's a significant density of brokers covering every name. And the, it's natural as you go further down the market cap spectrum, there's a lot fewer and no offense to all of those um, small cap um, analysts out there. They also tend to be a, a bit more junior in their experience. So it gives those of us, and I suspect that you've got three on the panel today, that actually sit down, tear companies apart, see if there's something there. If there's not, dump it, move on to the next one. That ability to you know, do, do the fundamental work is, um, is a path where you can, you, know, you can create value. Like I said earlier, find, find a fund manager that visits the companies, does the work, um, does the stock picking and you know cuts the losers if they're wrong and lets the winners run and that's a way to sort of uh, find alpha I think in in the small cap market. I probably also jump in, Chris, there and say you know one of the issues that the small cap area is is, is broking research can be a little bit compromised as well. You know, no one really gets much out of writing a sell note, so most of the notes are biased towards the buy side. Um, Secondly, you know, research is, is hard to come by. The brokers aren't doing terribly well at the moment. They're normally only going to write or put their resources toward an analyst writing report on a company if they can see a corporate deal coming out of it. So that's also likely to be positive. So I think one, what research is out there is also you've got to take with a grain of salt. So 
again, you know, to touch on Rollo's point, you've actually really got to go out there and do your own work on these things. And I think that's where there is some value in getting fund managers to do that for you. Yeah, I don't feel that it's changed dramatically, Chris. I think those issues have always been there. And the way to make money out of small cap brokerage is to do the ECM side of it, right? The fundraising and and capital raising. So you'll find companies that are not going to do that, that have got plenty of cash, are not going to get much research. One thing I would add, though, is I think the, the sophisticated, knowledgeable retail investor has more information available to them and more ability to share that information with like-minded people than they've they've had before. You know, there's some really interesting little communities in on Twitter that are discussing ideas and writing up some things in, in some detail. So I, I think there's some pluses and minuses in terms of the competitive environment out there that the broking communities probably, you know, like it always has been, not really able to cover this end of the market well, but yeah, I do think there is some people doing some interesting stuff out there in the, the sophisticated retail side of things as well. So that ability to share information is quite different from what it was 20 years ago. That's an interesting point, Steve, because there's been a lot of criticism of the influence or the fin influence um, who use social media to, uh, uh, to influence stock prices for their own gain rather than... Pump and dump, Chris, you can say it. Bump it up. We can do that. You know, we've covered. Uh, Dean, Dean's given brokers a bad name for saying that they're compromised, which they probably are. As an ex-broker, I would never have been. But uh, there are people who who are and were. Um, but but you know, that's the positive side of the internet and social media. You know, we've seen the negative side of it with the banking crisis in the US, probably. Um, but it's interesting to hear that that. Uh, there's there is a positive to that, and those communities are, uh, are are having a positive effect on the market. One presumes. Um, I don't know if you have any other points before we go to any questions. Um, are there any sort of final points, or would you like to listen to the questions? If there are questions, Damon, I don't know if there are questions, and. Um, uh, maybe you could hang around and answer those if we have any participant questions. Well, Chris, uh, we don't have any participant questions at the moment, but I guess um, uh, being um, the 9th of May, um, if the government's releasing a budget tonight. Um, is there anything, um, gentlemen, that you think might... Um, come out of that budget that might f affect the small end of the Australian market, or is the the series of leaks and interviews and uh, all that sort of stuff that's gone on for the last three weeks really priced uh, any surprises out of out of that away? I mean, I'd probably say that there's a lot of I won't quite say pessimism, but a lot of nervousness coming into a budget. There's no doubt it's going to be pretty tough my view is these these fiscal measures tend to impact the, the big end of town a lot more specifically than the smaller end of town some there's a few issues that could probably benefit smaller ones specifically but i think you know it's the top end of town the, the big resources companies the financial institutions the the retailers and stuff that really kind of that's where the interest is generating in these fiscal measures and I think where there's probably a little bit more nervousness. But overall, I think when you go to these things, you know, expecting the worst once the reality is is broadcast, 
there might even be a bit of a sense of relief in the market tomorrow. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I, I've been quite public about this, but the, the RBA has been coming in for an inordinate amount of criticism and you know whether the review is justified or not. I do think fiscal policy has a huge role to play here in terms of curbing inflation. And I'm, I'm quite concerned, not about the specifics, but about the broader picture of we're going to fix this problem by giving people more money, which they're ultimately going to go out and, and spend. And I would like to see more recognition of fiscal policies role in the inflation debate. I mean, we had 10 years of very, very loose monetary policy and no inflation. And then we have COVID and a massive fiscal stimulus. And then the inflation all turns up. It's it's pretty clear to me that that's an important factor. And I, and I think the one thing that we have seen in small cap land is that it is generally harder to pass on the prices and deal with the effects of inflation than it is if you're Woolies or Coles or one of these oligopolies that exist at the, the high end of the market. So I think one of the factors that we that is going to be helpful in terms of small cap performance would be some sort of moderation of inflation. And, and one of the risks here is that the fiscal policy is not doing its fair share of trying to reduce what has been a very big problem over the past few years. Gary? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got anything to add to the debate over, over and above what the guys have said there, so I'll just leave it to that. I've just I've just got one through at the moment. Um, just talking about um, the history and particularly, um, you know, in prior periods of high inflation, i.e., the seventies. Um, is there anything to be learnt from how they performed in that period of time? You'll have to put it over to Chris for the seventies, wouldn't you? Oh, thanks again, Dean. That's really kind of you. But is that the nineteen seventies or? <laughs> Oh, you're ganging up on me, guys. I actually have some uh, I have some US data out of that report that I, I mentioned the Global Alpha guys had, which was, again, fascinating. Two of the worst years you can possibly imagine. I mean, they were horrible years for the market, 73 and 74. But then 76 through 79 in the US were the best asset class was small cap equities, again, because the starting valuation was so low. And generally, they adapted better than people anticipated. You know, this whole idea that you either can't pass on costs or you can't fix your cost base. Businesses that are run by founders and where there's a lot of skin in the game, they they tend to surprise you, I think, on the positive side around how they navigate these types of environments. But that was some US data that I thought was very interesting. If you just Google it, Global Alpha Small Caps, you, you'll come up with their report. And there's some really interesting stats in there about the late 70s being surprisingly, surprisingly good for small caps. Yeah, I'll just pick I up on Steve's point there about, I said I'll just pick up on Steve's point there about the ability to adapt. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in, I, I, I was back in Europe during that you know, tech bubble boom in Boston. I saw how all the tech companies um, were able to navigate through that period. And the ones that were really successful in the end were the ones that had the ability to basically go out, cut their costs and preserve that growth optionality event for the future. You know, not knowing when investors would want that switch back on again, but expecting that at some point that they would. So we're looking for those companies that I guess have seen that shift um, and actually are looking to deliver on what investors are telling them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, investors change their mind about what they wanted to invest in. And when you're running a company, you, you just can't, you know, change the, the company direction on a dime. 
but they've now had plenty of time, I guess, to see the the change in investor attitudes and the change in the macro settings. And it's now about the ability of those operational management teams to make the changes in their business whilst preserving that optionality for the future. And that's a, that's a, that's a key thing that we we're looking for, particularly in sectors that have been heavily beaten up. That's at the end of the day, that starting position, that adaptability in that starting position that Steve referenced there, those are the two ingredients for future outperformance, we think. So that's what we're looking for. Um, one final question. Um, uh, someone's asked, um, do any of you have a mandate to be able to invest in um, IPOs, um, particularly with some of the tech that's come through over the period of time? And and is that something you you would be looking at in the next, um, in the sort of coming 12 months? You mean pre-IPO? Pre-IPO, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, our fund can look at that. Um, we don't have any tech pre-IPO material in the portfolio right now. Um, we were quite um, concerned about the valuation frameworks of some of the pre-IPOs as we came out of that COVID bubble because there were heaps around and the valuation frameworks you were offered in at just looked pretty tough. So fortunately, there were plenty of other things that we could have a go at with go out without actually taking on that type of risk uh, and here we are um, so we kind of reckon that there probably is going to be a few interesting pre-ipo opportunities over the course of the next year or so because markets for that type of asset are probably quite constrained so yeah we'll have a look and hopefully the valuation regimes that they're looking for are much more amenable and reflective of the access to capital so yeah we can do that Steve, oh, sorry, Dean. Yes. So, yeah, look, I mean, we we have a small part of our portfolio that we can allocate to, to pre-IPO. We don't. You know, it's 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 incredibly risky because it's incredibly illiquid. But we do like to look at it, um, you know, quite vigorously when there's deals around. If not actually to invest, but just to get data points really early on on how business is expecting to grow their forecasts and then if they come to ipo in a year or two's time you've got information that other people have don't have that can ascertain whether you think management are too optimistic too pessimistic whether they're doing better than they expected and the like and i, I think that's really valuable when you a business come to ipo is what were they saying they're going to be doing two years ago and that's where you get some information that soon um you know can be good for you steve do you have a mandate for that sort of thing we have mandate flexibility to hold up to 10% of the fund in unlisted assets. Uh, I've never bought anything pre-IPO and I find it hard enough analysing businesses where I've got 10 years of listed company records, let alone something that's much younger than that. Uh, we've used that more on the other side, actually. We've held a few things post-delisting or in wind-up where we've done substantially better out of being able to own it rather than having to sell just because it's being delisted. But we don't even have any of that at the moment. So I wouldn't, and nobody should expect that to be a significant part of our portfolio. Um, Chris, that's all for the questions. So over Well, to I you. think it's also, thank you, Damon. Um, thank you, gentlemen. I think it's also time. It's uh, nearly five o'clock, so we're up for our allotted time. Um, the summary that I take out of this is that, uh, the sector has been smashed. It has been oversold, possibly. There are some really good valuations there. 
and therefore patience is the requirement. We don't know whether it's tomorrow or in three months' time, but history will tell us that uh, the small cap sector will bounce back faster and stronger than the rest of the market, and that's always what's happened in the past, and there's no doubt that that will happen again. So, gentlemen, thank you for your time. I wish you well over the, uh, well, I can't even say three months because Gary's told me that it's four years or five years and that's the time frame. Um, God forbid. Um, so uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, look forward to following you on Fund Monitors and speaking again soon. And thank you to all the participants. I hope you've got as much as we have out of this session. Thank you.